0: Longtime listeners of the podcast will recognize our next guest, Shalene Title, is on this episode of The Chilinoy Podcast. In case you didn't know, we recently launched a Patreon, meaning that if you're listening to this for free right now, you're listening to this episode at least two weeks late. You can sign up for our Patreon. It only costs $3 a month, and you get early access to all episodes of The Chilinoy Podcast. We drop a new episode every Sunday, and as always, we have some of the heaviest hitters in the cannabis industry the entertainment industry, and more. So subscribe to us on Patreon. It's chillinoy.net slash Patreon. You might be familiar with my next guest from their op-eds and other written work which have appeared in the New York Times, MarijuanaMoment.net, and more. You may have seen her on The Guardian, Rolling Stone, Newsweek, PBS NewsHour, or you may have heard about her right here on the Chillinoy Podcast. Shalene, we channel your energy and cite your proposals all the time. So thank you so much for sitting down with me today.
1: Thank you for having me and for reading my work.
0: Yeah, yeah. So right off the bat, I always introduce you as a Chilinoy alumni, which by that I mean you went to the University of Illinois. Um, But I don't want to speak on behalf of you. Please introduce yourself uh, to my audience.
1: I am a Chilinoy alumni. I lived in Illinois till I was about 25, and uh, went to University of Illinois. Um, I now live in Boston. I was a regulator here in Massachusetts uh, initially for the first three years after legalization passed, and I currently run a nonprofit think tank called. Parabola Center for Law and Policy. We work on federal policy that is for consumers and workers, not big corporations. And I've spent about 20 years total um, working on marijuana legalization and drug policy reform efforts.
0: Yeah. So everybody definitely look into the Parabola Center. Like you just said, you work on proposals and policy that is for the consumer, not the corporation. And uh, that's that's something we talk about all the time. Um, before we get into all of that, because that's going to be the heart of our conversation today. Um, you just alluded to your history in cannabis. Can you give us like a highlight reel? Because uh, you've been through some legendary moments in cannabis. So.
1: I have. Yeah. You know, I've just been lucky. I've often been at the right place in the right time, and I also look for what no one else is working on to try and just, you know, like clear a path often. So uh, I was working on medical marijuana policy mostly when I was in Illinois. Um, I lobbied for the medical marijuana bill, gosh, in like 2005, maybe. And uh, then after moving to Boston, I worked at uh, the Law Enforcement Against Prohibition Organization, helping to organize law enforcement who supported legalization. And then I had a feeling um, I worked on some losing uh, legalization initiatives. And then I just had a good feeling about Colorado, that it would be the first to legalize so I cold called the folks in Colorado and asked if I could move out there um, and I got to be a senior staffer on the campaign in 2012, which was amazing. When I came back to Massachusetts, I definitely noticed that um, it wasn't going in the direction that I wanted. I was not enjoying practicing business law because I was not um, a fan of the clients that were going to be able to succeed in the industry. So I focused on advocacy to make sure that the Massachusetts law would look different. And that was when racial justice and social equity were not at the heart of the conversation. It was very much a a fringe thing. So I focused on that in Massachusetts and I started a recruiting firm called THC Staffing, which is still around. Um, And it gave me the experience of what it's like to be an ancillary business owner. And that's what I was doing when I got tapped to become a regulator. So after um, being a regulator, I really noticed that the direction things are going currently leaves a lot of space for anti-monopoly work. And I feel like that's what people are not talking about enough these days, especially at the federal level. So that has what is what has led me to my current work. I'm also very lucky to be partnered with the Ohio State University Drug Enforcement and Policy Center, which is um, the only one of its type. It's a top uh, public law school, and they have devoted all kinds of energy to collecting information about legalization and drug policy efforts to make sure that everyone has access to um, good information. So with them, I've written one paper on social equity and one anti-monopoly paper. And uh, that's kind of the, the highlight reel. I always try to uplift small businesses where I can and platform new voices that are talking about things that no one else is talking about, which I think you do as well.
0: Well, thank you. And for folks that want to read the the paper, we're going to have them both linked in the podcast description. Um, one of them that I'm going to be citing a lot today is uh, Bigger is Not Better. So, again, all the papers that Shalene uh, has uh, published or produced will will have in the podcast description. So I'm curious. um since you have been part of I think this will segue us into some of the policy proposals you've come up with with Parabola Center and in this this paper and everything else out of all the legalization rollouts rollouts that you've witnessed. Um, I guess my first question is, did you pay attention a lot to the to the Illinois, to how Illinois rolled out legalization? And the reason oh, I'm asking broadly. is I want OK, I was going to ask if you even had an opinion on how things kind of. Unfolded.
1: I would say I have a lot of empathy for the policymakers in Illinois because they were trying to do things for the first time. And it was really clear, for example, that access to capital was a top issue and that redirecting revenue to uh, impacted communities was a top issue. But no one had done those things before. Um, And so Massachusetts and Illinois have had similar struggles where we were trying to start the first social equity program, for example, it's not going to go smoothly, but I think the important thing is being really honest about what you're trying to do and how and why it's going wrong, because you can then course correct and states that come after you can learn from those lessons. So I think that, again, just only knowing the broad strokes of it, um, I think Illinois has done a good job at that. So
0: one of the things that that I think is um, on a lot of folks mind, and I just realized somehow I lost my quote, but I've read it so many times, I've nearly got it off the top of my head. Um, I guess a place to start and I have a place that I know you'll be able to dive deep on is uh, our former regulator of cannabis when asked for comment, like there was a video and the question was, why is it so hard to start selling weed in Illinois? And she simply explained the legislation and said, look, we had 4,995 applications for what was supposed to be 75 licenses. 99% of people were not going to get them. And I and I feel like license limitations uh, have really been at the heart of a lot of the issues um, that we've experienced. And that's why I love your paper, Bigger is not better so much because one of the key policy proposals is to not cap the issuance of licenses, but to, to still limit the number of licenses that any one entity can own.
1: Yeah, I, I've heard you say that before, and I'm always like, yes, because <laughs> <laughs> I want that to become a catchphrase. I think we would avoid so many problems if that's where we started. Um, is that quote from Toy Hutchinson? Is that who we're referring to?
0: The first one was from Toy Hutchinson. Yes. The the 90, the 4,000. Yeah, that one. Yep.
1: Okay. Yeah. So just full disclosure, Toy is a, a good friend of mine. We've been through a lot of very similar experiences. We've both gone to nonprofits, which is really unusual for former regulators. I think that um, in Illinois, the two problems were number one, yes, the license limit which uh, was a problem in Massachusetts, medical marijuana, by the way. Um, That's why we were able to counteract it in adult use because we initially had 35 across the state, 35 medical dispensaries. It was nowhere near enough. People were calling them golden tickets. People were, um, and of course this happened in Illinois and this happens all over the place. You just hire consultants that can write your um, SOPs and your business plan and all of these application elements. And then you hire, um, in in the newer States, you have like diversity and community impact requirements. You hire people to do that. And it just becomes who has the most resources gets the licenses. So the terrible model, that's the first one. And then the other one is, both Massachusetts and Illinois had to allow, because it was in the statute, um, medical dispensaries to open first. And if you try to do that and then build something that is uh, fair at the same time and promotes people who have been impacted by prohibition, you can't, they just don't go together. So I think those are very clear mistakes um, in both of our states. But as you said, they're addressable. And um, luckily for us in Massachusetts, because we learned from medical how terrible it is to have this tiny number of licenses that you're giving away, we have um, unlimited licenses here at the state level. And once you open or own or control um, three of any type of license, you're done. You can't do it again. And we have invested, um, regulators have invested in um, accounting companies and enforcement mechanisms to make sure that if people are trying to find loopholes and exploit those limits, we can stop them. And I think that's really important because when we talk about a national market, I think that is what would save us from domination and monopolies as well.
0: Yeah. And I think the biggest key there, though, and this is something you've pointed out in the past, and it's something we spoke to David Lakeman, uh, who I believe you uh, may know from Massachusetts, Um, you know, as a regulator, you have to be agile. And sometimes, frankly, the speed of policy doesn't move at the speed of everything else, let's just say. And so, as you've pointed out in the past, there can be conglomerate shell company loophole situations that will always be challenging to try to figure out. But yeah. it's like it's like on not only the consumer, but but it's kind of the, the society to be aware of these things and, and call them out. And then, you know, to be able to craft policy and rules to adjust for those regulations.
1: Yeah, so so let me just emphasize that because you are so right it's not just a rule um or it's not just a job for policymakers. we really depend on consumers and whistleblowers oftentimes former workers too um to talk about what's happening because you simply cannot police every single transaction it's just physically impossible but if you invest, like I said, um, in enforcement, that helps. And then if you want consumers and workers to talk to you, you have to build trust with them, too. You know, you can't just expect that people are going to come and help you with that enforcement if you don't treat them right and you're not honest with them.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, on the the flip side of the coin, um, I you know, there have been other states, uh so I actually, I was actually about to switch topics. I want to dwell on what you just brought up for a moment. Um, you know, that's one thing that I think is, is going to be interesting. Like it kind of depends on the state, but, um, you know, for example, I recently brought up and it wasn't even, it wasn't even me. I can't take credit for it. I got to give credit to, um, Chicago sun times reporter, Tom Shuba Mm -hmm. and, uh, somebody else, uh, I think their name is Deliciously Dope TV. Um, They tipped me off to this story about real estate investment trusts, which I don't know what the hell. I didn't know what the hell a real estate investment trust was. I'm not huge into finance, but it turns out it's it's a bigger company that basically is acting as a source of capital for a lot of these cannabis companies. And like, for example, on um, one company's website, they claim to own seven of uh, or 100% of seven of the cultivation centers in Illinois. Mm-hmm. And um, I pointed this out to regulators because the law reads in Illinois that, you know, no entity may hold any interest directly mm-hmm. or indirectly in three or more cultivation centers, which is in line with your proposals. Yeah. And my thing is when you, when you say directly or indirectly, I feel like if the person owns the property in which you're cultivating cannabis on
1: mm-hmm.
0: that might be directly or indirectly involved with the, the with the license. So, mm-hmm. um, I'm not asking, you know, I'm not necessarily asking for you to comment on it, but I will say that I channeled your energy
1: <laughs>
0: and that was my angle on it. You know?
1: Yeah. 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 You know, um, First of all, uh, just going back to Dave Lakeman for a second, your interview with yeah. him was fantastic. He worked at the Massachusetts agency um, and he was so great at like talking to different audiences, which I'm not so great at. Uh, and so I learned a lot from him about uh, municipal. That was his job was was a. Uh, liaising with municipalities, and I learned about how that works and how they will often uh, have, frankly, a lot of corruption in who they select in their uh, limited license structures. Um, But going back to what you said, I think that uh, ordinary consumers and workers and also media have a role to play. There's no doubt when someone like you points something like that out, you know, you find it in an investor filing or you find it, you know, and in, in very often just CEOs bragging about how they are violating license limits. If you bring that to a regulator's attention, of course, they're not going to say, yes, thank you for bringing it to my attention. This is why we're taking action. But it really does. It really does play out that way. I've also had experiences where we were aware of something for the same reason, um, but you can't talk about it until you, know, you have all your ducks in a row when you're a regulator. And then the public finds out about it at the same time. And then you take action. Everything comes together very nicely. Um, but then you have... This has happened to me. You have people taking credit for it and they're like, oh, the regulators weren't going to do anything unless, you know, we said something, which is annoying, but really it can't hurt to bring it up and definitely pay attention to what these CEOs are saying because they don't really censor themselves a lot. If you're listening to, um, industry conferences and interviews and reading investor filings, you'll find things that other people don't.
0: Absolutely. So to your point, you know, um, fighting for for Parabola Center, fighting for the individual, not the corporation. I just watched Benzinga. And one of the things they clearly said in Benzinga is that we look for the East Coast. We look for limited markets. The West Coast, we're not really interested in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why? (laughs) Because typically the East Coast and Illinois, they're all limited licensed states. The West Coast, it's like, oh, we can't compete out there. Right. Yeah,
1: there's a piece in my paper. Um, there's a paragraph where I had tracked down where they had bragged about this um, in their filings in Canada, and they had referred to certain states as olig- oligopolistic markets. And so when my paper was covered, some of them had gone back to the companies and asked them what do you think about this, and some didn't reply. And some said, Oh, we've changed a lot since those days. Um, I'm rolling my eyes, but you got to read these things. It's ridiculous
0: yeah yeah it's funny that's we we i am not an economist by any stretch i talked to justin uh, Libby, who i think you also know Mm -hmm. from the university of illinois and uh i had asked him like Because at the time, there was a a lawsuit in Illinois alleging, uh, you know, that there's a monopoly and there's a Chicago cartel, a lot of of language like that. And Mm -hmm. I was talking to him and he argued, yeah, that it was was an oligopoly. And uh, I'm not going to sit here and pretend to know the difference, but it sounds like maybe the the, in a nutshell, the difference is that an oligopoly is a controlled market, whereas a monopoly is like domination of an open market. Is that
1: uh, well, I think that the activities of the companies are really key. So we talk about things like price gouging, price fixing. Um I, I'm not going to name names, obviously, but I think that there are some trade associations that perhaps are not thinking about the fact that you're not allowed to engage in these behaviors that are, in fact, engaging in these behaviors. And, um... Sometimes I think companies feel like they are allowed to do it because the product is federally illegal, but that's not true, the laws still apply. So, you know, I I never really thought that Illinois lawsuit was necessarily going to go anywhere, Um, but I'm glad that it was brought and that people are paying attention to these issues, whether it's cartels, oligopolies or monopolies, I don't think we have a monopoly yet to answer your question, but I think we are very much on the way Um, And so paying attention to these behaviors is really important.
0: Yeah. And to ask you quickly, just because I have a assumption, like a baseline understanding of price gouging and price fixing, again, not to name names, but there are certain companies in Illinois that have products for sale at a certain price. But then you go to Michigan and it's at a much lower price. I'm talking like half the price. Is that an example of price fixing because if you go, the reason uh, no. I asked that is like Coke, you go, to Coke, You can buy Coca-Cola anywhere and it's about the same price, you know?
1: Right. Um, no, and you may not like that answer. I have had to answer that before. And The reason it isn't, and we have the same issue here with Massachusetts and say Maine in the same region, is because every state is different and you have to produce sure. in every state according to the regulations in that state. So you can't rationally say that the price has to be exactly the same um in two different states
0: yeah it's like a supply and demand thing that makes sense you know right mm-hmm. and, and since these are closed off markets without interstate traffic that's actually one of the things david lakeman said i asked what's the problem with wholesale prices dropping because that's always the argument against limited licenses and really quick i was gonna pull up a, a quote by steve Marks, which i love he was a, a commissioner of uh Or sorry, the executive director of Liquor and Cannabis Commission in Oregon. And when he was asked by Vice News if they should have capped licenses because they didn't, they didn't have a license cap on production or uh, licenses. And so they did a story about how Oregon has too much weed and businesses are having a a race to the bottom. Mm -hmm. And his comment uh, was everyone just wanted to be the first in to have their stake in it. And they were willing to take the risk to be a part of that market.
1: Mm -hmm. I
0: don't think that's necessarily bad. In a controlled market, they'd be left out and they never get that chance. Yeah. It seems like I I just, you know, even a podcast I recently heard you on, uh, a person was arguing against uh, limited licenses and they were saying it creates a nightmare for regulators or not even for regulators, for for business owners, they did try to make the argument that, re, you know, there were shortcuts and regulations and consumers' health are at risk. But they mm-hmm. were trying to make the business, and this is the only argument I ever hear. I heard it from David Lakeman. It's that wholesale prices will drop and that it will hurt operators. And my thing is, like, is Isn't that the actual value of cannabis? Like, is it is the regulatory purpose of these limitations to artificially inflate the value of cannabis? Like, it just seems weird.
1: Well, here's the thing. I think probably um, when we look at the long term after national legalization, we're probably all going to guess that things will end up in a somewhat similar place. But how do we get there? How do we do the transition? What does say the first five to 10 years look like? Um, That is very much influenced by policy and how well we understand and plan for that transition. Actually, the reason that we started Parabola Center first is because nobody was talking about the risks with starting interstate commerce immediately. So at that time, the Moore Act was the only federal legalization bill that had been introduced. And it's largely described as a progressive justice-focused bill, um, which it is in many respects. But it doesn't talk about interstate commerce at all. So what that means is if Congress deschedules cannabis... Amazon, big tobacco, big pharma, big alcohol, all of these groups that have actively endorsed these bills and are standing by and have the infrastructure And the shipping capacity and everything that you need to have in place to immediately dominate this market can then do so, right? And then when we talk about local and state and national bureaucracies all layering on top of each other, that causes chaos that no one else is going to be able to navigate. It's actually very similar to the way that only MSOs have been able to navigate local and state bureaucracies right after legalization right like we've seen this play out and so what we have to do instead i'll tell you what we don't have to do is uh just say no to interstate commerce and try and delay it that's also a terrible idea because that just allows the mso's to continue their state level oligopolies so what we do have instead is the opportunity for congress to create a plan to transition interstate commerce in a way that makes sense and that is equitable and that is totally within their authority, yet we don't see anyone talking about that, whether it's the Democrat-led CAOA or MORE Act, whether it's the Republican-led States Reform Act. So that is actually the reason why we first started Parabola Center is because we were seeing gigantic issues that just were not being talked about at all um, in interstate commerce, and that transition was the first one.
0: Yeah. Um, totally makes sense. I, so, just one last thought on license limits, and then we have something uh, sort of controversial that I've seen you and Dr. Grinspoon talk about. Um, it's not actually controversial, but some for some reason in the cannabis co- community, <laughs> it is. Um, so, But again, I, the license limits, the only argument I've heard is from operators. And even in this Vice video I was referring to, they ended it with, there's one group of people that never complain about cannabis market, market competition. People who like cheap weed. You know, like I really feel like uh, you know. So for for example, in Illinois, it it ultimately took like the the original bill that that we had called for more licenses. Um, it, it called for or it, it would allow for the home grow for all adults. That was ultimately scaled back because of objections from licensed cultivators and police unions. But ultimately, what ended up getting it across the line, I think, and people can read about this. There's a headline in the Chicago Tribune. It's an old story. Illinois cannabis growers spent about six hundred thousand dollars on political giving leading to the legalization vote. Like we Mm -hmm. literally had um, demand studies from normal suggesting that we do not do this licensing structure and ultimately six hundred thousand dollars went towards this licensing structure which again i think ultimately just inflates the value of the products the yeah. operators are able to to your point price gouging and price fixing yeah
1: yeah yeah
0: um so uh i just wanted to get that last little line in i i love that there's one people there's one group of people that never complain about competition <laughs> which is the consumers um yeah
1: so i'll just say real quick that um it is kind of fun that when you talk about pro competition um all of the lines change a bit because i feel like these days um and anyone who follows my work knows that like i'm generally very comfortably on the left of the political spectrum but we get more enthusiasm for anti-monopoly work and competition from the right these days so i think when you were talking about a national cannabis market you end up with a really um interesting coalition that are anti-license limits and want to give everybody a fair chance. Um, but I usually tell people, you know, if you are comfortable with just a race to the bottom and uh, Amazon Basics weed, you know, and if you'd be happy with the alcohol industry, having no craft beer or craft wine, because craft beer and craft wine fought for the opportunity to have access to the market. Right. And we don't have that in cannabis bills now. So if you're happy with just that, then, you know, don't pay attention to this. But most people are not happy with that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I think the great thing about your proposal is open the market. But those ownership limitations to keep the equal footing of all operators. So the last thing I'll say before we move on to potency limits, which is our controversial topic, Uh, one thing you just made me think that's, that's in your paper, uh, many who previously opposed legalization are now seeing the state, the success of state legalization and are starting to really warm up to the notion of ending prohibition. Um, yet many small cannabis businesses and longtime reform advocates have become the loudest voices in supporting a slow and exercising caution in the future I'm loosely quoting you you were specifically <laughs> talking about federal reforms but I think it's interesting how you know it used to be the people like from Sam which we've had on our show a few times that are like the sky is falling everything's gonna ha-, you know everything's gonna be bad uh, you know they're saying pump the brakes pump the brakes now it's the people that are advocates saying hey pump the brakes a little bit let's do this the right mm-hmm. way yeah you know? so yeah. interesting how times have changed <laughs> So potency caps. I recently heard you speak about potency limits. Where do you where do you stand on potency limits?
1: Where I stand is I don't know. I think that it's worth examining. And uh, this actually ties very well with what you were just saying, because um, sometimes I think the most valuable thing I have to offer is to just say that I don't know about something and we shouldn't rush to judgment. Potency caps is such a great example because Um, Obviously, of course, we don't want very low arbitrary potency caps for no reason that are going to prevent patients from from using medicine like duh. Right. But it is a more complicated question than that, because we have big tobacco, we have these consolidated corporate conglomerates right that are looking to maximize profit and soon we'll have the opportunity to do that in a national market and it's very clear from past evidence big pharma big tobacco big alcohol that their goal is to make these products as addictive and dangerous as possible to maximize profit and if we are not preparing for that then we are being Really stupid, frankly. So I don't know what the answer is, but we have to also think about the fact that we're just not talking about flour, which of course has been used relatively safely for thousands of years, but we're talking about products that have not even been invented yet. So some form of potency caps is certainly um, necessary. And I would advise people to just think about the fact that when you are... Advocating for um, a lack of regulations altogether, you are just kind of working for free <laughs> for corporate forces. So don't do that. Use your own brain. Understand where the line is for you, you know, and it's going to be different for everybody. Um, I think menthol bans is actually a really great um, example of this. So I personally am against bans on uh, menthol and flavored cigarettes, because I think they would just create an underground market. But there's a line, right? You do have to ban additives in um, vapes and cigarettes to make sure that uh, they're still safe regulated products, right? So it's not just, oh, we should stop all regulations because it's going to create an underground market. You have to think about that in a more sophisticated way. And the earlier people understand that, um, the less likely they're going to end up just being like chumps for Philip Morris, frankly.
0: Yeah, that's exactly the nuanced answer I was looking for, um, because it really is. It's a it's a nuance. The, the answer is full of nuance i think one of the things that you just brought up that, that we haven't touched on is uh, one of your proposals you've brought up is preventing people um like that from getting into the market so i wanted to give that policy proposal some air again folks will have links to the papers in the podcast description um but i thought that was a really solid proposal that's forward thinking you know you've abused our trust in the past why would we hand this market to you in the future
1: Yeah, I would just start by trying to tell people to empower themselves. If you haven't been in this movement for 20 years like I have, then perhaps you haven't seen it. But this was a movement that was led by people, you know, patients, the LGBTQ community in California, students, really young uh or, you know, marginalized people that were affected by the drug war and wanted to change it. Truly, like the corporations didn't get involved until a few years ago, like after it became profitable. And so the reason that's important is because if the community is this influential, you can make the market look however you want it to look. So don't just think, oh, lobbyists are in charge. They've already won. Um, You know, whoever has money is going to write these laws. That is really not true, especially in cannabis. And I can tell you this being involved in DC that the members of Congress who are interested in cannabis are interested in it both because they believe in it or if it's on a political level, it's because they want to come across as mainstream or you know someone who supports uh, the people, right? So they're not going to take a corporate view of this because that's not what they're going for. So with all of that as background, let me say as an attorney and a former regulator, legally, we absolutely can keep big tobacco out of the cannabis industry. And that's because it's well documented and well within the authority that if someone is applying for a license and they have a background whether it's criminal or business or civil, that shows that they are not suitable to engage in the activities that the license allows them to do, you can deny that license. And so that's why you see, you know, in most states, and I tend not to actually agree with these limitations, but you have mandatory disqualification based on a person's history. And so, Big Tobacco has had a settlement, a well known settlement where they were found to have been violating the RICO Act. Um, They lied to the public. They manipulated their products and then hid the fact that the products were killing people. There's no more direct evidence than that, um, that the company, the people involved in the company, a new company that those people make should be kept out of the cannabis industry. So we've written that exact language um, and put it on our website along with Um, as you were saying, the limits on how much of the market or how many licenses a person or entity should own. I think if you're trying to keep all like, quote unquote, big money out of the industry, that is more difficult. There's no clean way to do that. But I think with big tobacco, it's actually quite um, straightforward and people will just need to feel empowered. And really like public opinion is with us on this as well. Most people think that nonprofits shouldn't take money from big tobacco. And most people have a negative opinion of big tobacco companies because of what they've done. And so there's a a path for us to follow, um, to get to the result that the people want.
0: It's very interesting. Very interesting. And I certainly wasn't aware of all those things. So I know that that was probably informative for my, uh, listeners. So, um, back to potency limits. I think, I think the really, the thing that causes people not to be able to have that conversation. And I think this is what we have to work on is it's gotta be rephrased. Cause potency caps, potency limits, like Sam literally has that on their PowerPoint presentations. And I'm not just saying that mm-hmm. anything that Sam says is wrong. I'm yeah. not saying that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just saying that I, I, I've always had this conundrum where it's like, I've got a 90% cannabis cartridge right here and I can function clear as day, like ADHD medication on it. But then I can smoke a 23% flower and it flips my world upside down. So Mm -hmm. potency, I really feel like we haven't figured it out. Um, you know, somebody, I heard somebody make the case that we've figured it out with edibles. That edibles are in Mm. fixed concentrations in in each ones and and it's a dosed out. Um, I don't I don't think we actually have figured it out with edibles yet because I've given a lot of different people edibles and the the, the, it's always a different uh, outcome. Let me just put it that way. Um, People have pointed out, you know, flour, there's a lot of discrepancies in the quality when you could go to a product. And I always say, like, you, you know what you're getting when you get a Miller Lite for the most part. But even that example is not a solid footing example. There are people that are, quote unquote, lightweights. If I don't eat something that day, that can definitely affect a Miller Lite for me, it, it, the consistency, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. There's just a lot to this issue. And that's why I like your nuanced answer. I wonder if <laughs> I always see this argument. It always turns into an argument. It's supposed to be a conversation, but it turns into an argument on Twitter. And I truly believe because Twitter's just not a place to have nuanced conversations sure. like these, you know? <laughs> Because people are like, you want to cap my edibles? Get the hell out of here. And it's like, no, 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 I'm not...
1: I think where we have figured this out is uh, in terms of consistency with products, right? Because when I was in college, you never knew what you were getting. We were only buying flour. Um, occasionally, somebody would make brownies and you would have absolutely no idea what was in it, right? And so yeah. even though I would consider myself a light, lightweight on caffeine, alcohol, and cannabis is just how I'm built, uh, Is it is really nice to know if you buy a gummy, it's it's going to very likely be the same thing the next time. But, to your point, um we have not adequately put that alongside like the spectrum of users. And first time consumers should be able to um, get a product that is equivalent to, you know, one beer or one cup of coffee. Uh, And it isn't going to be, you know, a heavy dose that's going to like ruin the experience with them forever, which does happen often. And we shouldn't minimize those experiences. Yeah, Uh, one thing about Sam uh, that I find funny. So I love that you said thank you for saying, you know, you're not going to disagree with something just because Sam said it. It drives me a little nuts. I have. I debated Sam, you know, back in 2012, we have like a very long history. They have a slideshow with the picture of me that says Rolling Stones top weed lobbyist. And I've never been a lobbyist in my life. So I don't know where that caption comes from. But in recent years, we have both been talking about big tobacco a lot and they disingenuously talk about things like potency caps. But the funny thing is, when they talk about the need to regulate products, they are undermining their own point, which is that we should not have legalization and regulation. You can't have a potency cap without legalization. Right. right? So I think they're pretty confused and trying to figure that out on their own end. But let's not let that prevent us from having reasonable regulation, which is, in fact, the goal.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean Sam, they've been on the show multiple times, they'll be on again in the future. There's a teaser. Um mm-hmm. so uh yeah, I guess my last thought is the other thing that's playing into this, like you say we have achieved a certain semblance of edibles. I know I downplayed it a little bit. There is definitely a better gauge, let's just say. It's better. It's definitely mm-hmm. better. Um, But the thing about flour, of course, and this is something my doctor told me from the very beginning, inhaling anything is just not a good method of ingestion. You're not going to get your dose appropriated. And so like in flour, it's an agricultural product. I just don't think we're ever going to achieve that consistency. I think I think one thing you've said in the past or maybe it was Dr. Grinspoon. I think the future may be and I know people don't like the idea of this, but pills, you know, because We have achieved consistency with pills, more or less, you know what I mean? And so if we can achieve that same consistency with a cannabis pill, for example,
1: I Um, I mean, I think
0: that's ultimately the answer, you know,
1: uh, I'm going to disagree with you slightly. I think that there are many people for whom that will be the ideal method of consumption. But I think that there are other people who really appreciate the speed of inhalation especially if you're vaping flour you know you don't have to deal with all the issues of smoke because you know you feel the effects immediately and then you can kind of titrate on your own in a way that you can't when you're say digesting an edible
0: definitely yeah that's a conversation we've had with physicians in the past if you need that immediate relief sometimes inhalation is the best way to go Mm -hmm. um So. So, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a nuanced conversation. The whole potency limits. Uh, Again, I just want to reiterate for folks that that haven't gotten this yet. We're not saying that you can't have super potent products. What you're saying is there should be entry level products. That's one thing that is lacking in many cases. There are not any entry level Mm -hmm. products, you know.
1: Yeah, I think also that um, there's an education factor where. Again, people understand what is one cup of coffee and one beer or, you know, another uh, measurement for for liquor or for wine. And if people understood a consistent like serving size for weed, that would be very helpful, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, one last question before we uh, start to wrap up um, the show. And I realize this is a big one, but I, I constantly wonder this. Why have we taken something that's relatively simple and made it so complicated?
1: <laughs> Why have we done that, God? I think because we have thousands of years of uh, experience with this plant. And then we're trying to address it with, just in this country alone, decades of policy that has destroyed families and generations in a way that they didn't deserve. And then we're trying to layer that on top of a society that, for the most part, worships money. And those three things don't intersect easily in any form.
0: Well said. Well said. And I think that that is just... It's it's almost the root of uh, a lot of our issues, again, is, is kind of where money plays into this, you know, like we can go in so many different angles with this. But one angle that I always take, like having spoke, we just had Tommy Chong on the show. And one question I asked him is like back in the day when you guys were fighting for legalization, right? you were simply asking to not have to worry about spending the night in jail or spending a few nights in jail. Correct. That's what you were fighting for. You weren't necessarily fighting for like, I want a store with this and that and and lotions and blah, blah, blah. Like, sure. That would come also. I'm not saying that stores shouldn't be around, but the Mm -hmm. the, the number one was, I don't want to be in jail anymore for this. And Mm -hmm. what's crazy is through all the States we've, we have remained um, or we have kept a lot of policies that that do put people in jail. I mean, one the one that I can think of uh, is possession limits. And then, of course, that relates to home grow. Mm-hmm. And it's again, it's kind of back to how did we how did something so simple become <laughs> so complicated. I'm um,
1: glad you brought up home grow, though, because some things really are simple and home grow is simple. And if you don't have home grow in the law, local, state or federal, then it's a deal breaker. Just don't support it. End of story, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And a point that other people have made, though, that I have to it's almost like I'm not I'm not giving credit to. I'm not. Well, let me just say so. Alcohol prohibition, obviously, a thing of the past, right? Um, but homebrew didn't start until Jimmy Carter, I guess. I learned from a recent Box Brown uh, yeah, comic. Yeah, I learned
1: that from Box Brown
0: as well. <laughs> yeah, so um, we did some reading, and I was like, based off the comic, and I was like, wow, this is this is certainly interesting. I didn't know that technically there, it was like almost a similar trajectory, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, we have model language on home grow at the federal level. And of course, it raises a lot of questions, um, but it's, it's still simple that you have to allow it. I think that what I really like about your show is that you don't shy away from nuance and you don't oversimplify things. And um, the more that people do that while still having convictions, right, that's the key thing. You can't be so lost in like nuance and trying to be professional that. You forget all of the principles you're supposed to be working towards. The better we'll end up with policy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I always say that that we're going to to win this with cannabis and it's it's about the next thing, you know, and, and I'm curious, uh, does the Parabola, does the Parabola Center like I know they focus like on cannabis proposals and for the consumer rather than the corporation. But what are, what are your thoughts on like psychedelics and, and the future of that?
1: You know, well, first I'll say for a parabola center, we are, um, because we don't take MSO or big tobacco money, we're pretty small and narrow in our focus. Um, But I was asked, I was on a panel recently about what lessons can we take from cannabis to psychedelics. And so I was, Looking into where we are just at a really superficial level, I do not think that we are anywhere near ready for psychedelic regulation. I think with cannabis, we've gotten lucky in a lot of ways because of specific attributes of the plant. But when we talk about psychedelics, if we were to undermine or that's not the right word, underestimate the risks the way that we have with cannabis um, and the fact that people who are using psychedelics are in such a um, suggestible state often, you know, and the the risks of abuse there, the importance of, you know, the training that the therapists are involved, the costs, um, there are just the potential for things to go wrong are so enormous that we need years and years and years of careful study and policy planning before I think we're anywhere near uh, the regulation of psychedelics. But that said, um, decriminalization should happen yesterday. Nobody should be arrested for the possession of use of any drug, in my opinion.
0: Well said. Very well said. Well, um, before before we go, I always like to ask, is there a way that our listeners could help to support you or the Parabola Center? Um, Thank yeah. you.
1: Um, thanks for asking. I would say follow me on Twitter at Shaleen Title. Um, I try as hard as I can to uh, be involved in Twitter within the, the limits that that platform presents. And then you can follow Parabola Center on Twitter and Instagram as well. Um, we I don't take a salary. We largely pay our bills through Patreon donations, five dollars a month. So if you're interested in supporting this effort, please check out our Patreon as well. And if you can't afford that, just read our work. We love it when people read our work and are prepared and criticize it. The more people openly criticize the policy in public, the better it's going to get.
0: Yeah, well, I know you get this question a lot, um, but it's a big question that I wanted to end on. Um, what What is your outlook on the future for cannabis and drug policy reform?
1: I think uh, it's the same as what it was when I got started in 2002, which is that arresting people is not working. We need an alternative. We need uh, the safe, smart, legal regulation of drugs. And at this point, pretty clear, my whole life is going to be devoted to that effort. And it's a big effort. I would suggest for people, if you feel like it's too intimidating, um, just focus on one aspect of it. You know, you don't have to understand everything. Just focus on one aspect. Talk about it. Communicate, you know, practice writing and uh, the world will be a lot better off with your input.
0: Well said. Well said. Well, Shaleen, I'm so grateful for your time today, folks. I hope you found value in this episode. And uh, Shaleen, I'd love to have you on uh, again sometime in the future. So uh, we'll make that happen. So thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you on the next episode.
1: Thank you.